We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 15 of the LSQ Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny LSQ, excited in this episode to share two new interviews instead of just one. It's a Katie Sadie extravaganza. What that means is that in the second half, you'll hear an interview with Speedy Ortiz's Sadie Dupuis. I'll tell you more about that when we get to it. But first, man, I'm so glad I finally got to spend some quality time with Katie Crutchfield, an exceptional young singer-songwriter who, since about 2011, has been releasing her music under the name Waxahachie. And we'll talk about the various musical steps that led her there and important childhood influences, like, for instance, the influence of being an identical twin. Some of you may already know this, but Katie's sister, Allison Crutchfield, is also a very talented musician who currently plays in the band Swearin', and maybe Allison will be a future LSQ guest. But hey, the focus is on Katie right now, and so we're about to get into a conversation that happened in my place here in Brooklyn over the summer. Currently, Waxahachie is out on the road doing solo dates, and she's got more shows opening for Courtney Barnett in October. Plus, this week brings a new Waxahachie EP called Great Thunder, so go get it. you for coming over. I'm so excited, yeah. Where are you now with music stuff? I mean, I know that the latest album has been out for almost a year. Not quite a year. Okay. It'll be a year in July. Are you are you starting to think about the next group of songs at this point? Where do I where am I finding you in your current creative cycle sort of? Um it's actually really weird. It's like an interesting place for me cuz normally I feel like I would be a little bit further along with the next one. Um but because I've really toured more in the last 18 months than I ever have in my whole life. I've always toured, I mean since I was like a teenager in some capacity, but like I've just been going nonstop with very very little time off. Um so I haven't really had that much time to write. I've just sort of started to like figure out ways to write on the road. So I have a batch of songs, but they are I don't have like a ton um, and I'm starting the touring's kind of going to start to taper off a little bit um, so there was a part of me that was really like struggling I was like ah like I gotta write I gotta you know I gotta make the next thing sort of like rushing it and feeling really frustrated that I didn't have time and I finally sort of settled into the fact that like 
it's cool. It'll happen when it, when it's you know when it's supposed to happen, and and even in just settling into that, I've started to write more. So um, yeah. And so what what do you mean when you say you found ways to write on the road? Do you mean like kind of just tactics to get you in the headspace, or? Yeah, totally. Well, my tour manager in Europe actually tour manages Big Thief too, and um, she was like, and I hope they don't mind me telling their secrets, but um, she was like, oh yeah, Adrian gets her own room, and she so she can work on music. And as soon as my tour manager said that, I was like. Oh my God, what, like, that's it. That's what I have to do. And I did it that night and I wrote a song. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I was, I just, I was like, I'm going to get my own room. I have the night off. And I did. And I just worked on music all night and it was very, um, like fruitful, you know? So I, it was, it was cool. So that's kind of my new hack. It's awesome. just, to, just to spend a little bit more money and right. work. Yeah. I, right. You know. And what made you want to start playing music as a kid? Let's see. Let's back up. When I was like 13-ish, 14-ish, um, Allison, my sister and I, let's see, we were like really starting to get into music. Like it was kind of in those like glory days of Kazaa and like LimeWire <laughs> yeah. where we, like you could just download whatever you wanted. And we kind of had made a friend... Um, who was super into grunge. It was, like, so funny. It was, like, hilariously, like, timed when we got into, like, grunge music. It was, like, 2003. So it was, like, not that long after it happened, but also before it came back around. (laughs) So everyone was, like, what the fuck are you guys doing with, like, your dyed hair and, like, your, like, light wash, like, ripped jeans? It was, like, very a very weird time to get into grunge. Um, But we we did, and we got in, and through that, we got into, like, Bikini Kill and, like, punk, riot girl music and just punk music in general and so yeah it was kind of like we started to like find that stuff and Allison and I had always been really into music in different ways we grew up dancing and doing like musical theater type stuff and okay so we're always really into singing and music or whatever and we found like that like punk music and I think we were just I mean it was like a weird time where we were supposed to sort of like angsty we like didn't really have that many friends we were kind of just like pushing and pulling trying to like find our like thing and then it's like we found that and it was just like immediately like, oh this is and you had it you're saying you had there was a friend too involved a who, friend who encouraged yes you to explore on the kazaa the the totally. 90s shit yeah this girl montana we were friends with was like a true freak like just like very cool very into like she was like upset like she would be in her mom's minivan like mom like put on this cd and would be like never mind the bollocks here comes the sex pistols you know what i mean and she would be like okay you know like amazing just like just angsty cool like into punk and just wore like the craziest outfits and we thought she was the coolest person on the planet um i had play. i had started to play guitar a little bit like just like acoustic like really because i love singing and i just wanted to like I just wanted to like a vehicle in which I could sing and maybe like, you know, learn covers or whatever. And then we met Montana and she like, she was like, I have an electric guitar and I want to start a band and you know, whatever. And Allison and I were like, that sounds great. Let's do that. And so we started to kind of practice, but it was like the classic situation. It was almost like that episode of Full House where like DJ starts a band and like Jesse's like, all right, you got to practice. And she's like, no, like we're like more into like the look and like the name and like, you know, the superficial things about being in a band. And it was like, it's so funny. It's so telling about who I am in general, but we were probably like 14 at this point. And like, that was everyone else. And then me and Allison also were like, no guys like this is serious and like we were really serious about it we were like like no this is a thing we're gonna make this a thing we're gonna like we need to practice everyone needs to learn how to play their instruments and nobody else was into that so we had like a falling out and like they were they were very like you guys are uptight and like not this is not fun and we were like 
this is serious. So we went our separate ways. And then Allison and I proceeded for like the next year and a half to basically do like nothing else but work on music. Like we didn't really have that many friends anymore at that point. Like we were kind of like really just the two of us. And you're how old at this point? Like 14 probably. Yeah, like 14. And um, just every day, literally every day after school, we'd come home, we would like have a snack, we would go to the basement and we would work on music until our mom was like, you have to stop. Um, And we would just play like REM songs and like kink songs and like just covers and and sort of through and you that, both play, you're both playing guitar. No, she's playing drums. Okay. Um, Allison, her that was her first instrument is drums. She's a great drummer. Um, and that you mean as P.S. Eliot? That, that was a band called the Ackleys. Okay. Um, and then we did P.S. Eliot sort of shortly thereafter. P.S. Eliot started or Ackleys started in this really specific way, where it was me and Allison, and it was lo-fi and like we were shaky on our instruments and it had that kind of like rawness and that sort of like lack of I don't know, just like sometimes I think like technical skill can be a little bit of a burden in creativity like it'll just it just gets to be like too polished or something and um Allison and I that was a really big part of our thing when we first started was that it wasn't like that it was sort of like we were it was really creative and it was really lo-fi and that was part of our thing and then we sort of through making all these friends in the scene like we added Allison shifted over to like play like keyboard and like synth and stuff and we had like our friend Carter play drums and our friend Michael play bass who were like amazing players both of them um and we got real that was got really popular locally I was actually telling the story to someone last night because that those music industry like awards oh yeah were last night and um I talked about how the Ackleys won a Birmingham area music award when we were 18 because we were really, really popular in that scene. Like we could like pack places out with like kids. Um, cause we were just like a power pop band basically. And like, we're really, you know, tight and like a good band. So that we kind of did that for a while and got super popular in the scene. And then PS, the, the thought behind starting PS Elliot was that Allison and I really missed like doing what we had, how we started, you know, like her on drums it got to be a little too like pop and like polished for us. And so, and, and, you know, we were starting to go, people were starting to go to college and mm-hmm. we were all kind of having that moment at the end of high school. Like maybe this was just a fun thing we did in high school. And like, everyone's going to go down their paths that they're going to go down as, a, you know, as they're becoming adults. And Allison and I were like, we still want to do music and we want to go back to doing it how we were doing it. You know, you know, as you're even going back to the Ackleys and you're nearing the end of high school and you're, you, you guys decide, and for listeners who don't already know this, uh, Katie and Allison are twins. So the weeness of it all is extra extra intertwined but obviously your mom had been supportive and let you play in the basement until it was too late to, to play but was there the idea were there were there other ideas percolating about it like a, what you what else you might do or like a different vocation you might pursue or when did when did you decide that fuck other stuff yeah i'm gonna try and make this work it seems like i can pretty late honestly um i yeah it's funny my parents were like supportive but like deeply confused by what we were doing I think because you know we come from Alabama it's you know I think that in their minds and they're great my parents are great people they're very supportive of what we do and especially now that it's like my job but um at the time you know I think that in their mind like all right we have these two twin daughters and they're gonna go to college and they're gonna join a sorority and they're gonna like get a degree and like probably get married and have kids and like and I think in like if you'd ask my parents like 15 years ago where they thought I would be right now is like as I approach 30 like married couple kids maybe with a job maybe a stay-at-home mom like that's probably what they assumed it would happen because that's what happens to a lot of people in, in Alabama and there's no shame in that but that was sort of like I think what they 
Figured, thought. So yeah. when we were like 15 and we were like playing electric guitar in the basement and like dyeing our hair bright red and like dressing, like wearing all these crazy thrift store clothes, they were like, what is happening? Like who, what, you know, they were like, my parents were like not into that culture at all. So they were just thoroughly Neither confused. of them had been like a kind of rebellious, counterculture-y kind of young person in their, in their own respective youths. Not really. Yeah. No, not really. So they were like, and they're, not to say they're like super, you know, straight laced or anything. They're not. I mean, they're, they're cool and laid back and But whatever. they're not freaks. They're not, but they're not freaks yeah. at all. Um, so they were thoroughly confused by it all. And, you know, it got really tense when we were in college, you know, um, Allison. So when I, we graduated high school, I like, I like immediately went on tour with the band and like, you know, didn't go straight to school and, you know, kind of like did my thing with music. And Allison did. She went straight to UA, which is like the big state university in Alabama and, for a while, it kind of seemed like, all right, we're just going to go to college and maybe, like, you know, I'm going to be an English major. Maybe I'll be a teacher or something. You know, like that was kind of, like, in the very back of my mind, like, maybe that's what's going to happen. But all the while, it's so funny. Like, when I was in school, I was, like, not going to class, just not at all, not doing any work, which is exactly how I was in high school. Just, like, t like I didn't do well, but it was because I just deeply didn't give a shit. I just, I couldn't make myself care. And I think at the time my parents were like, oh my God, like she's such a fuck up. Like she's like, you know, like, like wanted to just like strangle me. Cause they were just like, come on, like, what are you doing? And actually what I was doing, like when I think about it now, the whole time I was in college, which only was like a year and a half, I was booking tours. I was writing songs. I was demoing. I was like obsessed with making music. That was like the only thing I thought about or cared about at the time but never did it cross my mind to like pursue it as like a job I just was like but that was just like I was like deeply passionate about it that was like all I cared about and I actually when I look back I'm like I was very very productive in that time in my life but in my mind and I think to everyone around me I was like fucking up my life you know um so it's well, funny you were, now you were in a you were in your kind of creative cave or something. Truly. Like, literally. I was, yeah, very, very much in, like, a creative cave. And that's when I wrote, like, all the P.S. Eliot records and, like, kind of sort of in the same time I wrote the first Waxahachie record. It was sort of, like, a several-year-long span of either I was in college or I was working, but, like, working, like, you know, at a cafe or something and, like, had no money and could barely pay my rent and stuff for, like, years and years and years. But never did I think, like, I'm going to go for it with the music. I just kind of, like, just was sort of focused on it and, and honing it, but really just because it was, like, fulfilling for me to do that, not really because I thought I was ever going to be a job. When it started to be, I was like, oh, cool. Like, this is, this, maybe, that, only when it started to happen did I think, like, oh, this could, this also could happen, you know? You know, again, rewinding for a sec, what about your, early, what do you remember about the first times that you wrote music at all, or, like, how old were you, and, and, where would you sort of put yourself then? What was the get your own hotel room of of back then once you realized like, ooh, I, I think I want to do more of this? Yeah, you know, it came really naturally to me um, right off the bat. I mean, you know, there were a couple clumsy moments maybe when I was like 13, 14, like really early starting to like play guitar where like, you know, I was like, this is hard. I'm not good at this. But sort of like quickly after that, I was able to kind of like put it all together and um, you know, really, I, it's funny, I think about, like, music I was into at that time, um, like, a big moment for me, because I had been, you know, we talked a lot about, like, 
getting into punk and stuff. I'd been really into punk music and really into like musical theater and all this like kind of conflicting like styles. And I like really liked singing, but like that wasn't really like cool in punk, like to be like good at singing. Right. Um, and it's actually like when I started to kind of dip my toe into like indie music that was contemporary at the time and specifically Rilo Kylie and Jenny Lewis. Um, that was like, I feel like when I like heard Jenny's music, that was kind of like the first time I heard something and I was like, oh, this is what I, I want to do that. Like, I want to do this music that is, like, that's smart. The lyrics are really smart, and the vocals are really beautiful. And, you know, it's, like, it's it's alternative, but it's still, like, very melodic. Um, and so that was kind of, like, I feel like once I kind of started to hear that, that was really influential on, and, like, Bright Eyes and stuff like that. That was, like, hearing lyrics like that um, is what sort of... I think was like the, the thing that sort of guided me into my own sort of style. So I, I started to like really um, take a lot of time with the lyrics. And, and once I kind of was able to fit those together, that was like the big moment where I was like, oh, like that's actually kind of, I think the, writing the lyrics and still to this day, writing lyrics is the part that's, that's the most challenging for me and the most like fulfilling when I like, like am done with it. So I can't really remember exactly when that moment was, but I definitely had a moment where like, I sort of realized that, and then kind of from then on, that was sort of like the the thing for me. The lyrics. right, it sort of like became like a, like I found a formula kind of early on with like how I went about it, and then I sort of have just stuck with that formula forever. I get really excited about the melody, and then I have to write the lyrics because I'm like, I gotta write this song. This melody's so good, you know. And, right. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, like early on, I kind of that's sort of. Not formula, I guess is the wrong word, but like method kind of started to happen. And then kind of from there, it's just, it's been the same. Is it a feeling that you recognize when it's happening? Totally. Like physically? 100. Yes. It's like physical, emotional, like everything. I'm like, ah, the thing is happening. You what know, does like, it feel like? Um, I don't know. It kind of feels like, it's hard to describe because it's, it's something that I've like experienced for like half my life at this point. Um, but... Is it like adrenaline? Kind of, yeah, I think so. I mean, also just like, I'm like, I'm a Capricorn. I'm like, I'm like, like all about like, you know, being super productive all the time. And, um, you know, a project. I love nothing more than a project. Something that <laughs> there's something to be done. Yeah. And then when it's done, it feels so good. And like songwriting for me is like the ultimate where I'm like, ah, like I have this melody and it's, you know, and, and you know, writing the lyrics is going to be a cathartic experience for me. It is going to help me process emotions and then getting through that and then finishing it and then like taking a walk in my headphones with the demo is like the best feeling on the, it's like, I, there's nothing better for me than that. Um, so I think that that, you know, it's, it's just part of my personality, but the, yeah, the project element of it, like finishing the project, having something tangible that I can show for it is like very satisfying for me. There's like different tiers of it too. Like I finish the song and I feel really good about it. And the first person I send it to is Allison. And then I see how she reacts to it. And like when she, and, and, and for the most part, she's like, dude, this is awesome. Holy shit. You know? And that's like, that feels really good. And then, you know, now like, you know, the label or something and then our other friends and then, you know, put it out to the world and like other people are like, oh my God, it's like, it's sort of like, it's really cool. It's like, it's, it's like the best feeling, you know, like but the, I think my favorite part of the whole cycle of all of it is like the moment I finish it and I like take a walk and listen to it in my headphones and I'm like, yes, the magic happened, you know? Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, making music with a twin sister. I did an episode of, of uh, the podcast with Tegan and Sarah earlier this year and um, it was interesting that 
to both of them, they feel as though their creative process is so intertwined, mm-hmm. it's virtually impossible to, for it to exist with them each independently as far as making music you know what I mean yeah and so I wonder as you've made music with your sister over the years do you still have do you feel like you have a musical attachment to her or how how it must be interesting to be identical and to be creating simultaneously making different things from one another so Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just curious to hear you talk about that a bit yeah it's interesting um it's funny. I feel like Allison and I, we have a really specific creative relationship, and I think people, like, get confused about it a lot. I think people, in some people's minds, like, w- even when we were, like, making stuff in the same band, we were writing songs together, and, like, we're in the same room with each other. And it's really never been like that. It's always been pretty independent of each other. But I, but, but still, like, I think, you know, we both play an important role in the other's process. Um, mostly, like, I think because we started playing music together and in a time when we were just sort of like it it really did kind of feel like us against the world like we didn't really have any friends and we were just working on music that like you know couple years span there where we were just like really you know working on music and nothing else um and like that was sort of formative um I feel like now we sort of make music like for each other you know what I mean like it's for ourselves like deeply it's like it's for ourselves and it's for each other first before it's for anybody else so I think that like when I'm writing a song and I'm working on something as I'm finishing it like it's very heavy like hovering over me like what's Allison gonna think about this is she gonna like it that's the big kind of sign of approval that I need um to like give it to the rest of the world you know um so i and i think that she feels the same way so it's kind of like we don't actually creatively collaborate in the moment that often it's not like a we're in the room like working things out together i think we would literally kill each other if that was the case um but it's very much like as soon as it's done the moment that like you know i hit the button and it's i've done recording it like before I've even played it back to myself, a lot of the time I'm like, I'm sending it to Allison, I'm writing out the lyrics, sending her the lyrics, the whole thing, and just like texting her like annoyingly, like, listen, listen to the thing I just sent you, you know? Um, and that to me, getting that, getting her feedback is kind of like the the big like role that she plays, at least for me. And I think it's sort of vice versa. Like we're usually making things for each other. And are you, I mean, does it feel like that in every area with, you know, with her that you, you know, it's it's like with anything major in your life is sort of there's the like Allison question looming or is it the, the creative stuff where it feels more, you're more aware of like, I really trust what she's going to say here. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as we grow, it's funny. It's interesting as we like. I feel like we're, we're becoming kind of more aware of just like how intertwined we have been as twins. Just like it's 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 honestly as I as I get older, as I age, I feel like the more I'm sort of working out some stuff that is like you know like codependency stuff, like just identity stuff that has been sort of like muddled by being a twin. I mean, because you're pretty much just like sharing an identity with someone for like most of your life, um, and so I think we're go- kind of going through a thing right now where we are kind of like having space like she lives in LA and I live on the east coast kind of um like at least on the eastern in the eastern half of the country and so we're just sort of like we're sort of like examining a lot of that stuff right now um and it's interesting I feel like 
you know, in that way, we are kind of leaning on each other a little bit less about like the major things in life. But, you know, still to a certain degree, I think now we're, we're getting to a place where we don't necessarily need each other's approval for every little thing. It's um, it's interesting. It's like where well, you're catching me at like an interesting time for me and Allison. We're kind of like really started and she's not going to play with Waxahachie anymore. Like I'm going to kind of like I'm kind of starting to like go more solo and I'm going to probably play with other players just in general in the future and and that's sort of like a conscious sort of like we should not do this anymore we should do our own thing for a while and we're both about to be 30 individuation and, man I mean we have rough. to we have to it's, <laughs> it's a rough road and honestly I feel like compared to a lot of twins that like are like a lot of twins that are like that do the same thing or are creative with each other I feel like we're we're okay like we're not like the most like intertwined but um early yeah like early on we've always been really conscious of like of the twin stuff like we're we're like we don't want I don't want to make too much of the twin thing too I just want to say but it is a very special kind of a relationship it's a it's a -a one-of-a-kind human relationship right Yeah, yeah it really is I mean you know I mean I've been a twin my whole life so it's sort of hard to be like to have perspective on it but I've, I'm trying to more now and I, I've, I'm noticing ways in which like oh like this is kind of like made me made aspects of my life harder in some ways you know and um, and also has been like a really beautiful experience too so anyways yeah I mean you mentioned Rilo Kiley and, and Jenny Lewis who are some other artists that you know um, are role models for you when you think about just the kind of career you'd like to have yeah you know the big one for me the one that I always am like that's what I want to be when I grow up and I actually know her now and I don't I've never told her this but is Nico Case like I feel like I yeah just she just always all of her albums are like immediately like recognized as like you know they're always like acclaimed and 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 just brilliant you know what I mean and and you know she has the most beautiful voice I've ever heard she like continues to just make like cool just relevant music over you know decades and it just has like you know all the integrity in the world and um I feel like that's sort of and she lives on a farm yeah I have farm I have big farm dreams lately (laughs) um (laughs) so I feel like yeah Nico is like a big one for me I'm like I you know if I could have like the same sort of vibe as her you know and she says what the fuck she wants which is awesome she's just yeah she's so inspiring Truly. Well, thank you so much for visiting me for for the podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thanks again to Katie for taking the time to talk with me. And as I mentioned earlier, Waxahachie is on the road right now doing solo dates. Plus, there are more shows in October opening for Courtney Barnett. Coming up next in episode 15 of LSQ, another artist I was thrilled to finally be able to go along with after nothing but brief interviews in previous years, Speedy Ortiz's badass leader Sadie Dupuis stopped by this summer to chat about her creative journey to date. Speedy Ortiz is on the road right now, opening for an artist who, as you'll hear, has been hugely influential on Sadie, Liz Fair. Plus, in early November, Sadie has a book of prose and poetry coming out, so listen for more about that as well. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
Wait, where were you driving here in... in... I came from my mom's, who's so pissed that she's not oh here with gosh. me. Oh my gosh. She's coming in later. And where does your mom... Where's your mom's place? She's up in... She's in, like, rural Connecticut, in, like, the northwest Okay. Part. You yes. were visiting with her. Yeah, we played Boston a couple nights ago, and I went down to see her in between. And tour is over for a minute. I don't have anything for three weeks after this. That was the first long big chunk of touring since Torp first came out yeah so how, how was it what were the what were the hi- really highlights good. and lowlights or whatever um i think only highlights um we, we had all bands that i really love supporting us which i think we're usually pretty lucky about but um it felt like an extra good one we had um this band winter who are on my mind because i was just listening to them on the way here we had anna birch we had um soccer mommy we had so, so many amazing bands. Uh, this band Zetas from Texas are really heavy. Um, yeah, so we, we really lucked out. Oh, Kathy Foster's new band, Roseblood. Like, okay. if I think of any day, it was like two amazing opening bands. So uh, that's a nice feeling. And have I mean, have you always liked touring, or has it has has your have your feelings about touring changed over the years that you've been doing it now? I go up and down. I try to always keep the mentality that I'm wildly lucky to do this as a day job so uh obviously there are negatives to not being home for months at a time you miss your your dog right. your foster fail you miss your <laughs> um your toiletries your right. lipsticks yeah, exactly. your, your bedding but um i like traveling and i have a lot of friends around the country so touring's a nice opportunity to see all of them and yeah i, I love playing music so right so i like it. it but i mean is it sort of what you uh imagined when you thought maybe i'll play music in other cities with with my band it gets better because <laughs> it gets better because <laughs> uh, when i first started touring i was playing Strictly basements, strictly like VFWs, all ages. Not that I don't still love all of those things and think they're really important, but um, I definitely sleep on way less cement basement floors that right. I think will give me like fleas. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm older now, so my friends have children, so their houses are nice, and maybe I'm sleeping on like a nice futon rather than a cement floor. And so you toured as well as a kid. In- singing in choir which is a little bit like the diy style touring because we were all on a bus but um, internationally internationally just took that bus across the ocean (laughs) um how old were you tell me more about that um i was like between the ages of 10 maybe older maybe like 11 to 16 i stopped after i turned 16 and was um, it a was it a school was it your school choir or was it a local it thing? was not my school choir it was like a children's choir that um i commuted like 40 minutes to do but some people's commutes were longer like two hours um and we would have these really long rehearsals twice a week and then certain seasons were busier for concert time but it's like a really weird world of like solely performing for arts patrons or in like beautiful catholic churches and at that point i mean what appealed to you about doing that what 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 drove you to to devote four years of your life to I know. it's wild that i spent so much time on this um because was it just the singing was it were you, yeah, you just sort of really into the act singing. of singing at that point already or? i liked singing and i had sung in choir i i had grown up in new york and i sang in choir i went to um Catholic school so I sang then and then I was in public school and I think I I can't remember but I know I sang in some kind of children's choir when I was in when I lived here um and then for middle school my mom moved up to this like rural part of Connecticut and there wasn't a whole lot for me to get into because I was not interested in sports 
um, I liked music and I liked anime. So I didn't have, right. as you might guess, like a ton of friends. So same place she lives now, yeah. your mom, yeah. So my mom found this choir that I auditioned and I got in. And the director of the choir at the time had this like really... I don't know. It was it was very cultish the way that like kids felt about being in this thing because there were different ranks you could go through and depending on what rank you were, like the more shows you were allowed to do. You had to be okay. at a certain rank to do like international tour and you had to be at a certain rank to be on the CDs or whatever. Wow. Um, so it really what, like can we say the name of what the choir was? Yeah, yeah, it still exists. It's a different director now and I feel like it's I feel like it's less of a, a frightening experience for a child at this point right. to be in the choir. But it's called Chorus Angelicus. Okay. I believe it has won Grammys though. Wow. Not and so me. how many how many kids were are at any one time Ooh, any member? I haven't thought about it so much for so long I have is to it think dozens of people or? I would guess that the, the full choir would be like thirty kids, but like there, it was divided up into four different levels of things, so wow. maybe like eight kids per level. And at that point, did you, you know, did you start connecting what you were doing with that with the potential to make music an adult job? I think that I was not discouraged by my parents, but they were very realistic. So this was considered strictly a school extracurricular hobby, right? And not so much like a. You can be a choral singer with your life. Right, which um, is which is niche, which yeah. is probably niche. Oh, yeah. Or is it any more niche than indie rock? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe statistically I feel- there are more gainfully employed <laughs> choir members than there are. There was, a, there was an in-tandem adult choir, and I believe they did get paid. Yeah. Uh, the kids paid tuition. But it was really cool, and I think it got me into weird music because, like I said, this choir director was really intense, a little bit scary, very funny. Like, he just was intense. Uh so the music was all like intense like russian like you know 21st century classical music so really dissonant like weird time changes <laughs> do you um, remember any of it a little bit but I can't, yeah. I can't remember like who the composers are right and i feel like i probably stole some of the sheet music at some point so i could look in my mom's basement right. but um it was frightening sounding music and i feel like i was i learned started learning guitar a year later and i think when i was first learning i was like going through the sheet music, like, can I play this stuff? And I feel like it makes so much sense that I wound up playing the kind of music that I do, even though at that time I was listening only to, like, top 40 and, like, choral music. Right. But um, it was so scary and so weird, and I think that's, like, what I try to do on guitar, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So did you, was there overlap? I mean, did you start, like, working on making your own music while you were still doing Yeah, so I started playing guitar when I was 13, and I started writing songs around the same time. And when you were just saying that there's not much of a future in, like, choral singing, um, I had a friend who we started, like, a little guitar duo together, and we would play, like, open mics and, like, church basements and stuff like that. Um, And she's now, like, a really serious flautist, and I... I can't remember. She was like with New York Philharmonic, I oh, think. Wow. Um, so cool. she's really legit. Yeah. More so than me. Super legit flautist. So. SLF. Yeah. Um, so you start. So you were already starting to work on some of your own music, and and what what was that sort of ins- most heavily inspired by, or what were the oh. what was the music you were listening to that you might have been all the greats, Three Eleven, Incubus, <laughs> Weezer, right. right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Were there any shows to see in rural Connecticut where you lived at that time? or? Um, I went to boarding school for one year and a ska band came. And I think that Dispatch came. Okay. So, no, but my dad still lived in New York. My parents had joint custody, so I was still here on weekends. Okay. So I would come see shows with him. 
What do you remember as some of those early standout moments? Shows that my dad took me to? I remember going to see The Strokes and, like, Queens of the Stone Age and Sonic Youth played some, like, benefit show. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. And my dad (laughs) had, had, like, VIP, but I was not, I was, like, 14. Wow. So I was not permitted. And he ditched me. So I watched all the bands, had a great time. Right, My first time seeing Sonic Youth. And really any of those bands. Uh, That was a cool one. I know we saw... Death Cab for Cutie. I, I got uh, my mom took me to see my very first show, which was no doubt at the Roseland. Oh, nice. so I got to like some club gigs. And yeah, stuff like that. and I mean, is this just because your parents have cool taste in music that they took you to things they thought like you might like that, but it wasn't necessarily what you already liked? I think those were all things I wanted to go do, but we we liked a lot of stuff in common, and they had taken me to shows when I was a younger kid. Um, yeah, both my parents I think were pretty avid music listeners. They had both had music industry related jobs um, before I was born. So in like the 70s and 80s, they were kind of involved in like the New York punk scene. My mom had gone to England for a while to do a reggae label. um, And my dad had done A&R for a lot of sort of no wave bands. Okay. Like James Chance. And, um, but they had been out of those jobs for like 10 years before I was born. Right. Um, But they still kept up with music and, the thing that was cool about my dad, who I think I've probably inherited this from, he had some like um, manic, like compulsive buying tendencies. Mm-hmm. So he would go to the Virgin Megastore. Yeah. He had a guy that he liked there. He'd be like, what's cool and new? The guy would like pick out five CDs and that those would be the CDs he would buy and he, he wouldn't open them. So I would open them. And that's how I got into like Liz Fair and like Seven right. and stuff like that. Five CDs, perfect number for a chain for a five CD that's, that's changer. Exactly, there you go. That's exactly. Just load it up, put that shit on oh, shuffle, yeah. and you're just like, get it going. Yeah, remember when you can only take five? It's funny. I, well, I was, how was at, that that re- how is that that recent? It's crazy. I was at my I, as I told you, I was at my mom's um, yesterday, and I went uh, jogging, and I'm listening on like Spotify, listening to Mitski, and I was remembering when I used to go when I first like tried to do a sport. Um, I had like my disc man and I was trying to listen to like Exile and Guyville to like jog to. But yeah. it's just like skipping. You yeah. get through like one song in half an hour. But you can't yeah, but you I can't tried. jog on that shit. And now I'm like, what am I doing holding this phone? Like this is so archaic. But I think at the time like you have a big oh my ass disc man. Totally. I know you uh you end up going to initially to MIT for I did, college, yeah. which First of all, damn. I know, weird. That's cool. I, I mean, was no, just that's up bad, there. That's badass. At that point, obviously, the idea that you might do something professionally with music was was in a plan B kind of category. Well, I was double majoring in math and music. Okay. So I think there was part of me that... Um, I, I thought that I would do um, maybe like engineering, recording stuff. I took okay. um, some classes in that. But I mean... The way that their music program works, because I, I was only there the first two years, mm-hmm. I really got into like the entry stuff, like ear training and just like composition, stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I did take one really cool, it was like a minimalist electronic recording class that was all just like uh, record some found sounds and then have some fun in Max MSP. So, um, But then you got out of there. I did. Um, was it because you knew you wanted to focus more on, you know, uh, creative stuff and less on technical stuff at that point? Or? So I think it was because I wanted to do, um, it was because I didn't want to take chemistry again. And it was because I wanted to do writing. And while their writing department is really good, um, I mean, now I feel complicated saying this, like Juno Diaz at the time was like the big faculty member. Mm-hmm. Um but it was a, such a small program. There were like three kids in that major 
despite and more faculty than that. So I was entering the like writing awards things and winning all of them and thinking like this is it's very nice that I've won some money, but right. uh, it would be cool to compete with writers who like want to do that. Um, right. So I dropped out and took a little time off, and then. Um, and were you were you that you were writing prose and poetry and stuff like that? Or? I was really involved in the student newspaper. I became an editor really quickly because um, I was just super into it. And I was right. like, oh, I can get free concert tickets. Like, right. There you yes, go. Yes, I will the review this. Train. Clap your hands, say yeah, show. Um, <laughs> so, so I was really into that. And I was like, oh, I, I'm taking poetry classes. I was taking fiction, but I really wanted to be um, a music journalist. Mm-hmm. So I kind of uh, wanted to do some of that and some of poetry. And um, so I took a year off and I went to, I moved to Austin for a little bit, which right. was nice. And you were, were you still writing songs and, and playing music? Yeah, yeah, on I was your in bands and stuff right. um, all through that. But you, you, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that they were kind of running on separate tracks concurrently in terms of in terms of the that you were putting a bunch of effort separately into this thing and then a bunch of effort separately into this thing without yet maybe seeing that like, they were, that they were really yeah that I, it was yeah. all sort of the same thing and I always felt like it was a conflict of interest that I like made music and also did the music writing thing so I would like not share right. that with anyone <laughs> so I was continuing to interview all the time at different. Every, everything Condé Nast has, I showed up at an interview for, but um, I was like, I might as well just apply. I, I, like I said, at some point I finished my undergrad in the midst of all this. Yeah. Um, I applied to grad schools that were funded to see if maybe that was a more viable route, and I wound up getting into a few poetry programs. So right. I was like, let me take a break from the music journalism that I love but cannot find a job in. And then you started teaching at this camp. I had always been doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I went to summer camp as a kid, too, in addition to the chorus thing. And then when I became old enough to be a camp counselor, I was like all in on that. But that's sort of where the earliest uh, Speedy Ortiz songs yep. kind of started to blossom. Yeah. So I had been in this band all through college. And I guess the summer before I was going off to grad school to um, get an MFA at UMass and teach there, I became the head of the music department at this camp. And I taught a songwriting class. Um, so oh, it was cool. really fun. It was like a group circle thing. And um, we'd give, the kids would sort of generate different ideas for um, just prompts for songwriting. And it could be like, I want to write a song in this time signature, or I want to write a song where the dynamics change like this, or mm-hmm. I want to write a song with this lyrical subject. So a different kid would pick a, a prompt every day. And then everyone would go off individually and write for an hour. And there were three instructors, um, one of whom was Ellen from Palehound. Okay. Um, and we would kind of like poke around with the kids. And if they needed help, we would dive in. But as the summer went on, like they really don't need your help. Um, if you give a kid who loves music a prompt, even without an instrument, they kind of just can go off into their own world and make this thing. So we wound up writing a ton of songs while teaching this class. And I recorded a bunch of them. And those became the earliest Speedy Ortiz recordings. And so it must have been kind of, uh, well, inspiring at the least to watch kids who don't have preconceptions about songwriting, like learning how to do it. I mean, I think what's cool about working with kids doing songwriting is they don't get into the mind traps that I do, which is like, I can't do this easy chord progression. Like, I have to solve some complicated riddle for myself. Um, If you only give yourself an hour and if it's like, like the kids would come up with subject matter that was like write a song about a cow um you were <laughs> you know you have yeah. to kind of why not do write some a finessing song about a cow? it's fun yeah um so it, it was partially that but it was also that um 
because I was the head of the music department, I had the keys. So I could go in at like three in the morning and be like, I'm going to record the song I wrote today, but I have access to the cellos and the timpani and, uh, you know, right. the big piano. And um, I hadn't really done a tremendous amount of home recording before that point. So that was sort of the big thing about like starting this project. The first few Speedy Ortiz things were just me playing everything and learning how to record by myself. We started playing as a full band about a semester into this grad program. It's a three-year program. Um, maybe like two semesters in, suddenly like people cared and there was press that had never happened on my previous band. And that was like, when I look back, I mean, I look back on how much energy I had. Same thing as like when I was a kid. I'm like, how did I do all these weird extracurricular touring <laughs> choruses? Right, right. Um, now I remember like coming home from teaching and I'd be like, okay, I need to send 50 emails today about our tour press. So basically a semester of that and suddenly like things were going pretty well. Um, and I toughed it out for another, I, I did two and a half years of teaching. So I, I waited a really long time and did both. And then the final like semester of the program, we just had too many tour offers. Like we did a tour with Thurston Moore and then we had a tour with the Breeders finagling with the, you know, English department, like, hey, I need someone to fill in for me like these dates. Right. Um, they were cool about it. And then we had a tour offer with um, Steve Nockmas that was kind of a, a long tour and like European tour offers, all this stuff coming in. And I kind of looked at the money of what I earned as an adjunct, basically, versus what I yeah, make on the would road. make if I... And they were basically the same, and I was only giving some of my time to touring. So it was like a, let me do this all the time and see if I can make ends meet. So I finished, I did finish my master's, but I did it literally from a, a sprinter, like a tour van in Europe. But. Do you think that you will uh, make time for things that more directly access those skills and that experience when, when in the future? Air? Do you know? I mean, <laughs> it sounds like the answer is yes. <laughs> Probably in September. Okay, it should be fine. I have a book coming out November 1st. Oh, wow. And it's like a lot of the stuff I was working on when I was doing the MFA, but just haven't had time to think about again since right. then. And it's just been sitting around, and I, I have a hard time with music, too, working on a new project when there's another project that's done that hasn't been released. Uh, Do you think that the music that you like the best ha is has a certain quality, a thread among all of the things that you know that you notice that other people might not notice? Yeah, I like stuff that's surprising and that takes turns and um, takes turns that you wouldn't expect it to. And especially, I think I like a lot of projects that maybe sound are more of like a recording thing than a live thing. Um, not that like Deerhoof isn't a live thing or like Stephen Malkmus isn't a live thing. Obviously, those are amazing bands live, but they put so many weird tricks into their songs that are like three seconds long. It's like a, so a sound that you don't hear again over the course of the song or a melody that appears for like one second. And I really latch on to stuff like that. Um, those are the things that I want to like rewind and hear over and over again and figure out how I can do stuff like that. What are what are some things that you would that you would like to still do uh, in the context of a rock band that you haven't done yet? Ooh, I think I mean when we talk about doing the next Speedy record, we'd really like to do a very heavy record. And I think the band that I was in before um, before Speedy wasn't like super heavy, but I was tuned to Open C. There were certain like things that maybe I was pulling on from like stoner metal. And I feel like when I started doing Speedy, I was like, these are easy songs, open tunings, like 
obviously it didn't stay that way forever. Um, I was like, the old band had, you know, massive pedal board. I was like, this is going to be my like two pedals band. And now I'm back to the massive pedal board. Um, but I haven't yet gone to like really heavy sounding music with Speedy. And I think that's something that we'd all really like to, uh, head towards on the next record. Cool. But Whereas I, with like the Sad 13 stuff, I can't decide if I want to do, I feel like I want to do uh, like a pop country record. Like I'm really into uh, Marin Morris mm-hmm. and obviously the new Casey Musgraves. Right. Um, so it feels like it'd be fun to go to Nashville and like try to do, try to do my songs in that style. You should. That that's, would be awesome. That's my dream. So we'll see. We'll so, see how I do in the basement next week writing some stuff. Thank you so much for coming over oh, to talk to me. Thank you for having me over. Appreciate it. Speedy Ortiz is on tour with Liz Fair for the next month or so. You can find those dates at speedyortiz.com. And that's about it for episode 15 of LSQ. Thanks again to Katie and Sadie, and thanks so much for listening. In the upcoming weeks, you'll hear new interviews with singer-songwriter Leon Bridges. That's coming up later this month. And then in October, a two-part episode with the great Connor Oberst. If you haven't already subscribed to LSQ, maybe now's the time. Also, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but the podcast is now available for streaming on Spotify. So if you prefer to listen that way, go do it. And if you want to reach me with feedback or questions, you can always hit me up on Twitter at Jenny LSQ. Talk to you all next time. 